0: Let me give you a brief history of the buildup to this moment in less than 100 words. God sent Moses back to Egypt from Midian to confront Pharaoh and lead the children of Israel out of slavery and to the promised land. The Lord sent 10 plagues upon Egypt. He purposefully kept Pharaoh's heart hard and rebellious in order to bring his judgment on Egypt for their sin. And after the final plague, after the death of the firstborn, the Egyptians begged the Israelites to leave. They heaped silver and gold and fine clothing on them, and then they urged them out of the land. We're told that when the Israelites left Egypt, that the Lord led them to the Red Sea. He said, I'm not going to take them through the land of the Philistines, which would have been north up toward the Mediterranean shoreline. And he said, I'm not afraid that when they get there, the Philistines might see them and defeat them. He says, I'm afraid that when they get there, they might see the Philistines and go back. So he led them to the Red Sea, a distance of about 80 miles from the Nile River, about 80 miles also from uh, Goshen, where they were. Uh, where they were shepherds. We don't know what their starting point might have been, but it was a few days' walk. We're told at the end of chapter 13 of Exodus that the Lord himself led them, that he set a a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night as a physical reminder that he was with them always. And the last uh, last verse of chapter 13 says, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from among the people. From the moment that they left, there was a constant reminder of his presence. During the daytime, how do we know God's with us? There's, there's the cloud. You wake up like I wake up sometimes at 2 or 3 in the morning, having forgotten something. It's dark. You hear a noise. We've got bats. So I hear bats crawling in our ceiling. It just drives me nuts. How do you know God's there? You walk outside your tent, and there's that pillar of fire. He made a promise, and he kept the promise. They arrived at the Red Sea, and then God gave them a warning. Through Moses, chapter 14, verse 4, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, after the Israelites, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. See, God's got more than one purpose. He is delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And, and I don't think I need to say this to you, I'm sure you all know this, but Egypt is a New Testament picture of sin. And the promised land is a New, New Testament picture of Christ and eternity and reconciliation with God. They leave Egypt. They're heading toward the promised land. That's God's purpose. His purpose is also to destroy his enemies, to judge the wicked. And the Egyptians are a picture of that judgment in this story. Well, they're, they're pursued in verse 8. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. When the Hebrews understood that the Egyptians were coming, when they could look, look perhaps to the west and see that dust cloud, because Pharaoh is coming with chariots. By the way, Pharaoh's coming with all of his chariots He's got 600 special chariots. It's like special forces. And then he's got all of the other chariots. He's not bringing any infantry. That means he's not planning on capturing them again. He's planning on killing them. When they see that, they panic. Verses 11 and 12, they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've brought us out here to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So they're trapped. They're trapped between the Egyptians and the Red Sea. We might say, given given a New Testament reality of what Jesus has did in the fullness of the gospel, that people end up trapped between their sin and the judgment of God. I don't know when you were converted. Some of you, you may have been so young, you really don't remember I was 17, not quite an adult, but not a child, and I remember it very well. And I remember that what accompanied that moment was this feeling that I have sin behind me and judgment in front of me. That's called conviction. That's what causes us to cry out to the Lord. Then there's an exhortation, verses 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. The Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And then the Lord makes a promise to Moses, and I love how he opens it up in verse 15. The Lord says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Moses says to the people, stop panicking. And on the inside, it seems that Moses is panicking. But Moses isn't accusing. Moses is praying. Moses is appealing. And what does the Lord say? I've heard your prayer. I am going to make a way. You're not going to cross on your knees. You're not going to cross through prayer. You're going to get up and trust me. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me... Behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. That word honored in the New American Standard, most versions have something like glorified or gain glory. And it's the word glory. God says, I'm going to be glorified by delivering my people through the Red Sea. I am going to be glorified through the the destruction of the wicked. And then he protects them. Verse 19, the angel of the Lord, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved behind them. And so that they would know that that happened, the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them to behind them, on the side of the enemy. The effect of this is that it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. So the one did not come near each other all the night. I I think that the impact of there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light, means that on the Egyptian side of that pillar, it is absolutely black. But on the Israel side of that pillar, it's light. Can can God take one pillar and have one side of it be dark and the other light? Absolutely. And by the way, do do you notice how often God says, I will here, I will, I will, I am going to, I will? That's a key. Then there's deliverance. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. We don't know exactly where they crossed the Red Sea. We have some idea that it was toward the north end where it looks like kind of a big cul-de-sac. And at that point, it's between 5 and 10 miles from one side to the other with an average depth of 40 feet. They're crossing through on dry land with 40-foot walls of water. If I remember correctly from what I, from what I looked at a day or two ago, the Spencer Dam was about 27 feet high, and the wall of water that came out when it collapsed was 11 to 15 feet. They've got 40-foot walls of water. Five miles, 10 miles worth not three-quarters of a mile worth. And then there's judgment. Verse 23, Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud. And by the way, I think that what that means, he looks down through the pillar of fire and cloud, isn't that the pillar of cloud lifted and they saw the Israelites going I think what it means is that that pillar moved with the Israelites and the Egyptians just kept pressing the Lord looks down through it and it says he brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion then it says he caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty so that the Egyptians said let us get out of here let us flee Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians We give up. We're out of here. We can't win this. What are we doing here? Turn around. Go back. And then the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand again over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and over their horsemen. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, their waters returned, and the, covered the chariots and the horsemen and even pharaoh 's entire army the army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. I, probably most of you or many of you took the drive up toward Niabrera after that flood in March and saw what a wall of water eleven or fifteen feet high did what do what twin walls forty feet high collapsing. Together, This isn't water quickly rising, this is a collapse that crushes and buries and picks up the chariots and the horses and the men and uses them as, as, uh, as, as uh, objects of death against others throwing them from one side to the other. God confused the Egyptians. He caused their chariot wheels to get mired down. He made it difficult to move. And then he commanded Moses to work a second miracle and cause their death. See, he isn't just delivering the Israelites out of Egypt into the Promised Land. He's destroying his enemies. He's destroying the wicked. And then we see faith. Faith. verse 29, "...but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses." By faith, we're told in in Hebrews 11.29, by faith the people of Israel passed through the Red Sea as though on dry land. What was it that their faith accomplished? There's so much that's said about faith today. There's there's so many books and so many ideas about faith and you need to exercise your faith and you need to do this and do that. What was it that their faith did? Their faith didn't open up the Red Sea. God did that. Their faith didn't dry that ground out. God did that. What did their faith do? Their faith believed that God would do what he said he would do and acted accordingly. Their faith actually becomes common sense. Because when they see the Egyptians behind them, and when they see that the Lord has opened up a miraculous path for them and then dried it out, dried it out to the point that as those couple of million of Israelites walked through, they raised a dust cloud. It would have taken more faith, quote-unquote, to stay than to go. It was the only reasonable thing to walk down that shoreline down into the bottom of the Red Sea and then look at that wide channel God had carved through that valley of water five miles, ten miles to the other side and just go there. And in fact, their faith was increased not before they went, but after. When they realized the fullness of what the Lord had done for them. And just to underline this lesson, faith is not inventing things for God to do. Faith is believing that God will do what he has said he will do. It's standing on his promise. And refusing to budge. We've moved quickly, haven't we? Let's, let's bring this home. We see that Moses used the same staff to part the sea as he did to collapse it. We see that God used the same means to make a way for his people as he did to judge the wicked. And we see in the New Testament that the gospel does that very thing. That those who believe the gospel will be saved, that those who reject the gospel will be judged. Jesus says, it's not I who will judge you, it's the word that I preach, that will judge you. The gospel reveals to us the way that God has opened for us. And this is true in every circumstance of life, but it's especially true in the worst circumstance of life. And, and I, I know some of you fairly well I know some of you a little bit, but I can tell you this, the worst circumstance for every single one of you is your own sin. It's being caught between your own sin and the judgment of God. That is the worst circumstance. It's not health, it's not cancer, it's not money, it's not relationships, it's not what's going on politically, it's not what's happening in our schools. It's not the environment. It's eternity. That's the worst circumstance that we have. God has opened a way. That way is not a set of rules. It's not a religion. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's the New Testament version of saying the way has been opened through the Red Sea and nobody gets to the other side except through faith in God. Jesus is the way. The way is not an idea. The way is not a plan. The way is the person of Jesus. We see in in Exodus that the Israels repented. Now, what I mean by that is they left Egypt. Egypt is a picture of sin. They left Egypt. They set their sights toward what God was going to do. We see that we also must repent that we turn away from the sin which is behind us, killing us, that's driving us to judgment. And we say, I reject that sin and I want the salvation that the Savior has made possible. That he has opened up for me. We see that they believe. They trusted the Lord's promise. When he opened up the way, they walked down into that dry seabed. And we believe, we trust the promise of God in the gospel. We entrust ourselves to the Savior and to his word. We know that there's no other way of escaping the judgment of God than that which Jesus has made. And we know that that way leads to absolute deliverance. There is no possibility it can fail. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, Paul brings a a, a lengthy teaching on the grace of God to a close by saying this. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died for that condemnation. Yes, rather, who was raised for our justification, who is even now at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So now then, who can separate us from that love? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? No, those things can't separate us because Jesus has already faced them and overcome them. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. See, this life is full of trouble for those who love the Lord Jesus. But those troubles don't ultimately matter. Why? Because in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. Through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Putting it differently, once you have made it through the Red Sea, the Egyptians are no longer an issue. Once you have come into Jesus Christ, the sin that was killing you and the judgment that you faced is no longer an issue. The worst circumstances of your life have been dealt with in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and God's acceptance of you because of that. And nothing else has any eternal significance. Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, take courage, I have overcome the world. Peace is in Christ. In the world is tribulation. See, the gospel is not just about how we pass from death to life it's about how we live now jesus has overcome the world if if we're in him then we share in his overcoming The gospel is about life from that that moment on. So the tribulation you face, the distress you face, the persecution that you face, the hardships, the dangers, and the threats, he's already faced them. He's already overcome them. What about death? He overcame it. The needs of daily life, famine, and nakedness, he, he overcame it. Spiritual forces of wickedness and oppression, he overcame them. How about your present life and circumstances? He overcame it. What about your future? He's overcome the future. And it's all within his hands. Success and achievement, he overcame them. Failure and defeat, he overcame them. What about all the things the Bible never mentions? They're all wrapped up in that phrase, any other created thing. You can divide you can divide everything that is into God and every other created thing. God created things. That's how everything divides out. Can can anything created separate you from God? No, not if you're in Christ. Not if you're in Christ. The gospel is not about how you overcome the circumstances that you face. The gospel is about how Jesus overcame every circumstance that you face. And he made a way for you to have peace, not in life, but in something better than life, in him. If you're in Christ, nothing can keep you from him and the peace of knowing him. He will either make a way of escape or he will let you endure. If you're not in Christ, then everything still stands squarely against you, and you still have sin at the back and judgment at the front. And if you think you're on the wrong side of the gospel, or if you know somebody on the wrong side of the gospel, then beg them, please, 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 don't try to come to the Father apart from Christ. The Egyptians tried to cross on their own. If the Israelites can do it, I can do it. And God used what saved his people to destroy his enemies. If you know somebody who is saying, my religion is enough, my intentions are enough, my good nature is enough, if you know somebody who simply says, all I have to do is die, and everybody who dies goes to the Father, that's absolutely true. But only those in Christ go for the sake of peace and life. The rest go for judgment. If you know anybody who says, I've added Jesus, I've got my cart full of stuff, and I've got my religion, and I've got my rites, and my rituals, and my history, and I've added Jesus to that, they're an Egyptian. And they they need to be warned. Love warns them. Love says, I'm afraid for you. I'm afraid if your faith is not in Jesus alone, because Jesus won't share the glory. God won't share the glory. If your faith is in Jesus alone, then you have the promise of God. You have the promise of Jesus himself, not that you will one day pass from life to death, or from death to life but that you have already passed from death to life. This is what Jesus says, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. By faith, the Israelites passed through. By faith, we pass from death into life. Faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your grace given to us. We thank you for the gospel and the enormity of the work that you did. It was all your plan. It was all your purpose. We didn't create it. We didn't invent it. No human being asked you to make it. You did this for us. And then in the gospel, you show us the way and you call on us to trust you and to believe that you have made the way. And then to follow Jesus so that in him we become inseparably joined to you. In him we have your pleasure. In him we have your acceptance. In him we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. (coughs) Lord, I ask that your spirit would press this truth home to us. That we would lay aside any self-confidence that we have and that we would cast ourselves entirely under your hands. And Lord, even now, as you bring people to mind who don't know you, would you show us how to pray for them? Would you give us the words to say to them? Would you give us the courage to speak to them? Would you provide the opportunity to speak to them? Father, we thank you for this day and for this opportunity to gather and to be so blessed by your word. And in your holy name we pray. Amen.